Well, working through this uh, story, this historical story, the life of Esther, and we've broken in at an unusual place, actually. We're crossing two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 opens up the idea that uh, now all of the Jewish nation is under threat. And one of the things that we picked up on last week is that that is essential, not as a historical fact, but that is essential for us today. Uh, It's really important to see that, I think, in the book of Esther uh, and to connect it for us today. The the idea of Esther as a historical book, you know, the wonderful story of how God preserved the Jews is not just a historical event. It is significant. Um, There are things in life which you realize if that hadn't happened and that hadn't happened and that hadn't happened, uh, I would not be here. That, you know, when you look back and you can see the various things, even in your own life, you would say, if, if all of those things hadn't worked out, I wouldn't be in this particular situation, whatever that might be. Uh, there are, as we look back on our own lives, we're able to see, aren't we, that we have no control over those things. That there are things that go on in our lives that we find we are where we are, Uh, And yet we realize that it's a remarkable series of events. Uh, Imagine what it would be like if we were able to control those various events, truly, truly to be able to control them. We feel very often as if we are making decisions, don't we? Uh, And there are decisions that we make, but the reality is that the decisions that we make are desires that we would wish for rather than an absolute ability to deliver. Let me give you an, an illustration of that. Whatever, you're decide, whatever you've decided to do tomorrow, think about that in your mind right at this point in time. You might have decided to, I don't know, uh, go and buy some bits and pieces from the shops. Something as mundane as that. Uh, you know that that is your decision, uh, which is fine, but your ability to deliver that is not in your hands, is it? Uh, In reality, there are a thousand and one things that could subvert your ability to fulfill that desire. In reality, we have no control. Your car, and I don't want to say it, but the reality is your car could break down, all sorts of things could go wrong. You could get a phone call and you could find out that you've got to disappear off somewhere else instead, whatever it might be. We really don't have the control that over decisions that we think we have. One of the things that the Bible wants to encourage us to see is that behind the history of the world is the confidence that the God of the Bible is not one who is responding to events in the same way as we have to, but rather he is the God of the Bible who is sovereignly and supremely handling all things, even in the face of the rebellion of humanity. And so we see God's uh, people who are threatened, the Jews who are threatened by this man called Haman, who's decided, number one, I hate Mordecai because he's not bowed down in front of me. And because he's a Jew, I'm going to explode that disproportionately, and I'm going to get the king to write an edict so that all of that nation are wiped out. What that would mean for us today is that if that had happened, we would not be here. We would not be here, absolutely, because the survival of the Jewish nation 
was absolutely essential for the coming of Jesus. If Jesus had not been here, uh, had not been born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, lived the life that he lived, we would not be here, would we? We would not be worshipping in this way. And so we see that the, the survival of the Jewish nation is not just an interesting historical event back in the day of King Xerxes and the Persian Empire. It is essential for us today because it is part of that uh, series of stepping stones that God has put in place so that we might be those who know Jesus and know the God of the Bible. That's really important for us to see. Uh, Now what we see is that um, Mordecai speaks to his young cousin Esther through an intermediary, uh, Hathak. Hathak is sent by by Esther to find out why Mordecai is so uh, downhearted. We read really quite a challenging set of words. Verse 12 Esther has just said to Mordecai, you know, the reality is it would be a really dangerous thing for me to go into the king. My life is at stake. And Mordecai responds by saying to Esther, uh, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It seems a breathtaking statement that Mordecai makes to his young cousin, uh, who he absolutely loves. He's adopted her. She's an orphan. Um, uh, Father and mother have died. Uh, in her early life. He's adopted her. He's taken care of her. Everything in the story up to now has portrayed Mordecai as a compassionate, caring, protective older cousin to his younger cousin Esther. And then he goes and says this. And it seems, really? That, that seems so incredibly harsh. I don't believe that to be the case at all. It is today the 21st stage of the Tour de France. You would not expect us to get away this afternoon without some reference to the Tour de France, would you? Um, What's more, for the second year in succession, barring some incredible event, um, for the second year, a British rider is going to win, Chris Froome. He's got a fantastic uh, uh, African accent, mind you, but we'll claim him as British. Behind Chris Froome is a guy called Tim Kerrison. Tim Kerrison is the coach to the British, well, to the Sky Cycling team. Froome has talked about um, Kerrison uh, and the language that he's used towards him at times, the kind of harsh, dramatic language that has pushed him and driven him and squeezed him. To the point that, at times, literally, he has been off the bike in the fetal position, physically being sick with the level of exertion that uh, Kerrison has pushed Froome to. Extreme levels of training. Why? Why did he push him? Why did he push him in that way again and again? Because it prepares him for a moment 
where he can give him a, a message through the radio and he can drive himself to success on Mont Ventoux to the point where he needs oxygen at the top of the climb to, to recover from the exertion and the success and the triumph. Because that's what a great coach does. That's what a great trainer, that's what a great mentor does. Encourages, at times drives a person. Why? Because Carison knows him so incredibly well. He knows him, he understands him, and he knows exactly what is required at this moment in time. If we think about what Mordecai is saying to Esther at this moment in time, in that way, doesn't it change it? Mordecai knows Esther. He knows how she's grown up. He knows how she's grown as a, a, a young woman who has lived, uh, committed to her faith. He knows the quality and the character of the woman and the fact that in an incredible series of quite dramatic and uh, heart-wrenching events, she has ended up as the queen of Persia. And he knows at this moment in time the words to use to Esther to encourage her to, to kind of press that button which says to Esther, Esther, now is the moment. If you like, now is the moment to kick into gear, Esther. Here's the moment for you to respond because it might be that you're here for just this moment. I think when we see it in that way, it takes away the immediate impact of those words which seem so harsh and so uncaring. I actually think these words are some of the most profoundly loving and supportive words that we see from Mordecai. He knows her and he's saying to her, Esther, here's the moment. Do you know sometimes in our Christian walk there are moments when God does that to us? Just that. He uses, not words immediately necessarily, but he uses events, he uses, a, maybe a text comes to you, maybe something comes pressing in on your mind, and it's that moment, it's saying, now, <laughs> now is the time to kick. Here's the, here's the final few kilometers to the top of the climb in this particular aspect of your life. Here's the moment. This is the moment where you have to make that kick, where you've got to respond. That is not a harsh God. That is a loving, compassionate trainer and coach of a father who knows you and understands you. One of the things that we read in the New Testament and we see with great encouragement is that God will never push you beyond that which you can sustain. <laughs> the thing is, we don't know what we can sustain. And we are able, only able to sustain because he works within us by the power of his Holy Spirit. So when we get pushed and we think, I am at breaking point. I cannot sustain this. I cannot keep going. The events of life are now kicking into me in a way which I don't think I can keep going. We need to know that the God who is behind those very events, who, who, is, who is sovereignly supreme over all of the events, that feel as if they are incredible attacks that are going to crush us and drown us and defeat us, we know that it is God who is actually first sustaining us 
and pushing us and encouraging us to say, now's the moment where your faith is going to shine through. I want you to be encouraged that that's the kind of father that we have in heaven. In a sense, Mordecai is displaying those kind of characteristics to this young woman at this point in time. What we see, uh, and therefore for our own lives on a day-to-day basis, we see two things. Two things which I think are really quite helpful and instrumental. Sorry, um, they portray for us two aspects of huge decision-making. Here's Mordecai saying to Esther, effectively, one way or another, you're in that position and you've got to go and sort it out. Now's the moment. Go into the king. Your life is at stake. And she actually responds by saying, um, verse, uh, verse 16, she, she sends a message back and she says to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast, as you do. When this is done, I'll go to the king. Even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. (laughs) That's just astounding guts, isn't it? It's just astounding guts that she displays. We're going to... We're going to commit ourselves. So what might might we be able to understand from that? I think the first thing that we see is in that dramatic, life-threatening decision, we have a picture of trusting and waiting. That is so contrary to our way of living today. You know the kind of adage, carp down, seize the day. The idea that the first thing that we do is grab a hold of it and move forward. And and we take hold of it. And and we own it. And we drive forward. Is that how we should be? Well, Esther doesn't deliver that. Actually, what Esther does is makes an absolute clear statement of saying, I want you to join with me in expressing that my response to this is in God's hands. See the the way she says that. We're going to commit three days of fasting and prayer. Fasting and prayer is a remarkable thought, which at some point we probably need to think about. Understand what's going on in that. At least what is going on in that is this. It's a a physical way of expressing that I am stripping myself of reliance in this world and trusting in God. It's a way of saying I am stopping. I am not relying on my decisions, on my uh, plans, on my organization. I am trusting that the future is in God's hands. And I want to make, uh, and I want you to join with me, and I want us to be together in expressing that this is a decision that I'm going to make, and I'm going to make it 
in the light of knowing that it's in God's hands. Imagine if our lives were transformed so that we made big life-changing decisions like that. So that we actually were saying, I am going to commit myself to finding a way to express personally, maybe within the community of my uh, immediate friends, maybe within the community of my life group or whatever it was, I've got this massive decision to make in life. I want you to join with me in expressing that we want to say that this decision is in, and the outcome of this decision is in God's hands. Now look, look at the way she's doing it. She's already decided what she's going to do. She said, I will go into the king. She's clear what she's, what the, what's necessary, but she's saying, I will do that in the light of making a clear statement that the outcome is in God's hands. If I perish, I perish. Imagine if we were able to say, in those decisions, in those massive decisions, if I perish, I perish. I think the only way that we can get to the point of being able to say that is when we are absolutely confident that the outcome is in God's hands. Isaiah writes, chapter uh, 40 and verse 31, he says this. They who wait for the Lord, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What does that mean? Does it mean that if we kind of in a formulaic way do this, everything will be fine? If we spend some time and commit to it and and, and we commit to God in, in every decision, uh, and then we pray and we fast, and, and the outcome is going to be fine? No, not necessarily, but yes, absolutely. That's the, the strange and paradoxical thing. Uh, the outcome, as Esther says, it might be that I die. But I'll die in God's hands. <laughs> See that decision? Trusting and waiting. I, I, I think we need to, in the 21st century, maybe more than ever, need to hear that. We live in a world of instant everything, don't we? We live in a world of instant information. We live in a world of, of instant provision. Everything is 24-hour now. We were in Wakefield the other day, and there is a 24-hour gym. Who wants to go to the gym at 3 o'clock in the morning? But we live in a world where everything has to be available for us immediately. Absolutely, everything we need to do must be made a decision there and then. It's fascinating the impact that that has on our lives. The idea that as soon as we get a text, and here's confession from somebody who received a text from somebody this past week, read it, uh, and then didn't respond to it because it disappeared off the screen as a text that was unread. But, but we read things and, and we immediately have to respond. We receive a Facebook message. We, we receive an email. We receive a telephone call, whatever it might be. We live our lives consistently making instant decisions now, 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 now. And subconsciously, I am convinced that what that does 
is it fills our thinking with believing that our life is in our hands. Our decisions are in my hands. Our plans for the future are in my way of thinking. I'm not saying that we should sort of throw away all our technology. But I am saying that we need a reminder that there are moments to pause. There are moments to stop. There are moments to reflect that my future life is actually, thankfully, wonderfully in God's hands. And my decisions, I can have made this decision as Esther has. She's not, if you notice what's going on here, she's not saying, let me fast and pray for three days to decide what to do. She's not saying that. She knows what she's got to do. She's got to go into the king. She's not saying, let me just take some time and let me uh, put out a fleece and whatever it might be, use that opportunity to look for the right answer. It's clear what she's got to do, but she wants to make that decision clearly stating by activity and by community that the outcome is in God's hands. Trusting and waiting. Then we see trusting and acting. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. She was there. What do we know about that decision? We know previously that that decision was a life life or death decision. The only way that somebody was to go into the king's presence was if the king requested that person to go into their presence. At that moment where the king saw Esther, there were two possible outcomes. First outcome was that he could say, executor. Second outcome was that he could extend the royal scepter so that she might move forward and touch it and be accepted into his presence. Two things. Whatever the follow-on was, at least at that moment in time where she walked into the royal court, they were the two possible outcomes. And see what's happened. After three days, that's what she did. So she said to Mordecai, Gather every Jew, fast, pray for me, be with me, recognize that my actions are not simply my private actions, but actions on behalf of all of this people, be together in this, and then on the third day, she walks into his presence, knowing that it might be death. I think that that is just an astounding portrayal of profound guts. (laughs) Just God-given guts. But there's something else that I want to just point out. Yet again, in the thread of God's purpose in this world, in the way in which God is moving in this world to secure your presence and my presence in this place this afternoon, yet again, 
The work is done by a woman. I think it is absolutely devastating that the Bible is portrayed again and again and again in some kind of misogynistic uh, way where, where women are subjugated and all of that kind of thing. Again and again, what God is doing is upholding, honoring, placing in the story, placing in his narrative again and again the glory and the honor to say that we are together, <laughs> side by side, men and women in the work of God in this world. And here's Esther showing profound God-given guts. I think it's really important for us to say that, particularly in our culture today, when we try to reflect on the Bible, where we try to come to terms with maybe there's parts of the Bible that seem strange, seem maybe outdated. Does the Bible really always say what we think it says? Here we've got Esther. Guts for the future of salvation and the purpose of Jesus in this world. But there's something else that is going on, which also makes sense of the fact that Esther was able to say, if I perish, I perish. And it's a confidence that we read in Psalm 21 and verse 1, where it says this. In the Lord's hand... The king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. <laughs> I think it's a great picture, that. Who's the king? This all-powerful person who holds my life in his hands? Um, no. <laughs> no. Do you feel that sometimes? Do you feel as if the world... It's like the king of your life in a way that events maybe are the king of your life in a way which feels as if they have an absolute controlling power over you. I guess that might have been, in emotional terms, how Esther might have felt toward King Xerxes. But the reality that she believed, which overcame that fear was the fact that she believed that the king's decisions were like streams in the hands of God, where he could channel them in whichever direction he wishes, where he can shape them in whichever way that he wishes, so that the events in life, the extreme opposition, the supreme powers, they are nothing. They are nothing compared to the God who we worship. That's what this wants to encourage us to see. This is the supreme sovereign king on the throne, not Xerxes. It looks like Xerxes is on the throne, doesn't it? Well, he is in a way, but he's on a tin pot throne. He's on a bit of gold, restricted to a place in the Persian Empire with a few bits of bricks and mortar around him and a scepter of gold in his hand, and that's it. He is no more king of all of the universe. He is not the king of all creation. 
He is not the one who is supreme over every unseen being. He is not the one who is king over the whole of this world and is able to determine the beginning and the end of all events. He is not that kind of king. You see, we look at a king on the throne in this story, but the reality is that the story encourages us to see there is a greater king behind the throne. A king who at that moment in time, when Esther walked into that court, her life, although it appeared to be in Xerxes' hands, was actually in God's hands. And that's why we are able to do both. It's why we are able to trust and wait, and it's why we are able to trust and act. Something else. Esther's got a plan. She's worked it out. Because what she says in response to the king is, is, in human terms, it's crazy. It's, It's bonkers. So she goes in, and the king says to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. (laughs) It's like open goal, isn't it? You've got whatever you want, Esther. And she says, come to a banquet, you and Haman. You're kind of thinking, Esther, you're in front of an open goal and you've kicked it over the bar. Surely. Except that somehow, within the work of God, within the Spirit of God working in this situation, God has imposed on her thinking a way of dealing with this and encouraged her to say, invite them to a banquet. (laughs) Why? Because the hour has not yet come. Let's use that phrase at this moment in time. It's not yet the time, Esther. The time will come. Now, I use that very deliberately. Because in a sense, this little cameo story points to another event where Jesus breaks into the world. And it seems to me As if when Jesus came into this world, we understand what he did. We understand that he came into this world to die as the guiltless one on behalf of those who are guilty. If you've been coming along to Christ Church for any length of time, hopefully that's something that you've been able to pick up. That's what we stand for. We believe that at the core of the message of the Bible is the idea that Jesus died in the place of those who deserve to die. Very simple in lots of ways, the message of the Bible. But then, there's something else, isn't there? If it is as simple as that, couldn't he have just come along, done the job, and disappeared? (laughs) Well, yes. Apart from that, there was lots more for him to show and for him to display. In other words, for him to work that salvation out in this world required a whole series 
of events in his life that displayed who he was, that prepared us for the point where his salvation becomes clear. Three years of his life is ministry. 30 to 33. Three years of life where his, his life is ministry. He could, have, he could have died at year one, but he didn't. He died at year three. His, his salvation could have been as effective at year one as it was at year three. And yet it wasn't done that way because his life was a display to ensure that salvation is in God. He lives. And he says, one of the very first, in fact, the very first miracle that he does, he performs, is at a wedding feast where they've run out of wine. And we read in the Gospel of John, he uses just that phrase. He says, the hour has not yet come. When his mother says to him, they've run out of wine. And it's the very beginning, really, of his ministry. It's that kickoff point where he says, the hour has not yet come. It's not yet the time for my full salvation, for my full self-disclosure of who I am to be made. It's not the moment for me to fully display who I am. It's not that hour. But it doesn't stop a series of events in his life which prepare us for the point where, finally in John chapter 17... He prays to his father and he says, the hour has now come. In other words, all of those events beforehand in those three years of ministry are bringing you to a point where it becomes absolutely clear that now is the time for Jesus to save. That's how God works in salvation. That's how he works it out with Esther. Not yet Esther. Allow the process of my saving work to become clear. Invite them to a banquet. There's more to be done. There is more clarity in this situation to be made to assure you that I am the God who is saving here. That's what's going on. Esther stood in front of the open goal and King Xerxes says you can have anything you want. Esther Why don't you just say, get rid of Haman and change that law? Up to half the kingdom, it's a tiny thing compared to what Xerxes has offered. But she doesn't, because under the power of God, under the work of the Holy Spirit, there is more of the work of salvation for God's people to be worked out in that royal court. There's more opportunity for God to display I am the one who is saving here. Now that's the great news about Jesus. Why did Jesus come into this world and spend three years of ministering? Because he's wanting to show you and he's wanting to show me. It's all about my work of salvation. There are times when it appears as though the the game's up. It appears as though they've taken him. They're about to throw him down from the top of the temple and he just disappears from their presence because the hour had not yet come. There's times where you think, now's the moment, Jesus. Now's the time to do the work and he doesn't because he knows that at just the right time, at just the right time, now is the moment. Now is the time for it to be worked out.
You know, one of the things that the Bible does again and again is it works salvation in just that way. Again and again in the Old Testament, we see that God works it out so that he saves at just the right moment. He saves at just the right moment. He takes us to the point where we think the game's up and then he saves. He does exactly the same in his own life. He takes us to the point where it looks as if the game is up. He's dying on a cross and then he saves. He does it in our lives, doesn't he? He takes us to the point where we think the game is up (laughs) and then he saves. Again and again and again and again. I don't know how many conversations I've had where people have been able to reflect back, that they've looked back at certain situations in life and they've been able to say, it looks like it's all up for me. And then they find that in some incredible way, God breaks in and he saves. Why? Because God is wanting you and I to understand that salvation is about him. It's about what he's doing. It's about how he is breaking into our life. It's about how he is taking us to a point and saying, now's the time. Now's the time where I'm going to deliver a word into your mind, into your thinking, so that you can say right now. Because that is what great coaches and that's what great trainers do. They bring us to the point where we are able to understand now is the moment. (laughs) Tim Kerrison has done a great job with Chris Froome, but I tell you what, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, does a way more impressive job in every one of our lives. Every one of our lives, if we trust and we believe in him, we find that this pattern of God taking us to a point and then realizing that he's breaking in to to reveal his work of salvation in our lives. Esther is an example. Trusting and waiting, trusting and acting. But ultimately, it's about the greater faithfulness of God. It's about the fact that God was there beforehand. He was preparing. He was working it out. Do you know what? I want to live my life. I want to know that the God who I worship has that kind of supremacy and that kind of authority in the events of life. Because otherwise I feel as if I'm like a, a bottle in the sea, chucked around, thrown about. It feels like that until I know that actually he is in control. He is working out my salvation and your salvation in his time.